You are listening to iFanboy's Talksplode with Gene Lu and Yang. Hey, this is Josh Flanagan from iFanboy.com. This is another episode of our creator interview podcast, Talksplode. And today we have cartoonist genius, Gene Lu and Yang, on the show. He just started a series of Shang-Chi comics. He did Superman Smashes the Clan recently. And, uh, of course, the new book, Dragon Hoops. I'm a huge fan. It's a really fun conversation. So enjoy. I'm excited to welcome Gene Lu and Yang today to the show. Thanks for having me, Josh. I'm excited to be here. That's 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 fantastic. I I think we had you on the video show a really long time ago, probably before I knew how to talk to people on a video show. Um, so this will be sort of like the first time we've actually spoken. And um, uh, let's see. I I'll just start with where where I, I just read Dragon Hoops. I did not know it was going to be a thing uh, that that came out, and uh, you know, it just sort of showed up one day, and I went, oh. And and I was I was instantly uh, sucked in for for many reasons, uh, largely because you know I do not have uh, and we can explain what the book is in a second, but I I do not have a, a very strong relationship with sports, um, but I like it. I love sports from a like a documentary standpoint, from a historical standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, um, and so you've got your story uh, mixed in uh, with this this story of a team. And and I felt like as as you were going through it, I, I was relating to this idea of of being able to finally find a way to get into it and understand it in a different way. Uh, well, wh- thanks, man. Thanks for reading it. I appreciate that. It's a it's a long book to get through. I know it's like uh, four hundred something pages long. But I was like you. I had no real interest in sports before working on that book. And and that book, in some ways, it's about me becoming a basketball fan. Mm-hmm. Did that, did that, we can get to it, but like, did that carry over? Are you still, are you, are you yeah, st- I'm still, I'm still watching, I'm still following. I haven't watched a full game in a really long time, mm-hmm. but I definitely am still following. Like right now, uh, I mean, I, I'm from the Bay Area. I'm not supposed to be rooting for the Lakers, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I am. Oh, wow. That, that sounds like a real I sports think- fan thing. <laughs> I know. I, I think it's because of what you're talking about, right? Like, uh, it's it's the same kind of thing. I, I sucked at sports as a kid, but mm-hmm. what really drew me in was realizing that it's like the source of story. You know, it's like another way that human beings construct narrative. And right now, in our current season, which is like one of the weirdest NBA seasons ever, I think that the 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 Lakers have the best story. <laughs> so, uh, talk, I mean, the thing is, it's all kind of in the book, but you know, like how how did you? Like, is the story of how you came to this, you know, pretty much the same as what's in the book? Or is it more, you know, you're you're looking around for the next thing to write about and you sort of stumble on this team that's been right in your backyard? Is that is that basically how it actually worked out? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it's it's a little more streamlined in in the comic itself. But I do talk in the end notes about how basketball had been invading my life up mm-hmm. until that point. Right. So so Dragon Hoops is all about this high school team that I followed for the 2014-2015 season. It was the team of the school where I used to teach. I used to teach high school computer science. Uh, but before that, like I have a I have a 16-year-old son, and when he was in fifth grade, he joined his basketball team 
at his school. So I started having to go to games. You know, I had no interest in, in going to games at all, but I had to go because my kid was on the team. Uh, and then uh, and then all this stuff kind of happened. Like like uh, Jeremy Lin happened in, mm-hmm. in 2012, and that kind of piqued my interest. Like I couldn't understand why I cared. Like I never cared about basketball, but here's this kid that kind of looked like he – you know, um, grew up in a, in a neighborhood that's similar to the one that I grew up in. And, um, and I suddenly I was interested in the sport. So, um, was that, like was I, that I, really a thing oh, where ahead. if you, if you're seeing somebody, you know, who finally looks like you, not a ton of Asian players in the NBA, certainly not mm-hmm. up until 10 years ago or something like that. Uh-huh. Was that like a, a link for you that hadn't existed before? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And it was, it wasn't even one that I, thought I would care about. Right. You know, like if you had asked me before Jeremy Lin emerged, would this make you care about about basketball? I would have been like, nope. <laughs> but then it was, uh, yeah, there's just, a, there, it, it's the same thing that we're talking about earlier. There was a story that came out around him about, mm-hmm. you know, how he got passed over um, for for college, you know, even, even though he was on a California State Championship team and he was the MVP of that team, he didn't really get any offers from from colleges. And and just the fact that he ended up in the NBA was kind of a miracle. And then he goes on this crazy run. Um, it was a it was just a really compelling story. It was an incredibly compelling story. And, and I think the fact that he was like, I mean, he's like, he's an Asian American guy from the Bay Area, and I grew up in the Bay Area. Like we have, there are multiple people. I, th- I think he's like one degree uh, removed from me. You know, mm-hmm. like I have a friend who is a friend of his family's. So all of that kind of made me interested. So you know, part of this is is the story of 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 this team, uh, the Bishop O'Dowd Dragons. And by the way, my high school was the Dragons too. Um, which after a little while, I did I didn't realize it. I was reading. I was like, wait a minute. Oh, I was the Dragons. That's why. Um, <laughs> wait, where'd you grow up? Where'd Brun- you grow Brun- up? Brunswick, Maine. Very okay. very far okay. removed from that. Um, not a good not a good team. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, um, you know, but it isn't just that. There's also a history of the sport, and I think that one of the things that you get into, it's like you don't just learn about this team that's going on. You seem to have delved sort of in, into the history of basketball, and whenever you delve backwards into the history of a given sport, it seems like it, it tends to mirror culture. That's why, you know, like Ken Burns mm-hmm. baseball is my favorite. I could not sit through a baseball game in my, li- in my life, but I've watched Ken Burns baseball through three times. It, you know, it... So at what point in this did you start thinking about the team and then start researching basketball? Was that, you know, part of the whole process? And I, I yeah. guess because there's so much in here that that sort of synthesizing it into one work uh, seems like it would have been a really big process. Yeah, I, when I first proposed it, like I, I, you know, I started paying attention to that team. I got to know the coach, and it was really the coach's story that cemented it for me. Right, like the it ended up being chapter one in the book, but he mm-hmm. told me this story from when he was a teenager, from when he was playing on that same team that he was now coaching. And I found that so compelling. First, I thought he was lying. Mm-hmm. But then he gave me the game tape, and I realized, oh, my gosh, he's telling me the truth. And it <laughs> went down exactly the way he described it. Uh, so that got me interested. But then because I was a basketball newbie, because I knew nothing about the sport, I started feeling really intimidated. And to deal with that intimidation, I just did, I did homework. I started reading about basketball history. In the beginning, it was just to get to know the sport. I wasn't mm-hmm. planning on putting any of that in the book. But then I think it's like exactly like what you said. Like um, the, the history of basketball mirrors the history of America. And that's what really got me. That's what really hooked mm-hmm. 
Where where do you start when you're like I'd like to learn about basketball? Do you go into the oh, library yeah. and say what's the where's the first basketball book? Like where where do you begin with that? Yeah, yeah, I just I don't know. I looked around. So actually the 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 very first book I remember reading intentionally was Slam Dunk. You know that manga book. I mm-hmm. I read the first 5 volumes <laughs> just to see how people like I don't know if I read that many sports comics before that. So I wanted to see how somebody would do sports in a comic. And then and then after that, um, I read a I read a football book. I read uh, Friday Night Lights, you know. Oh, yeah. And I I did all three iterations. I watched I read the read the book, I watched the movie, and then I watched the television series. And then and then there's just a bunch of like these one season books, right? There's one called The Breaks of the Game. Uh, about the Portland, uh, the the Oregon, uh, Portland, Oregon uh, Trailblazers, mm-hmm. way back I think in the 70s or 80s, and then uh, there's a book called Skyline that does a does a a, a season of a of a I mean it's very similar. It's a, actually a high school team in Oakland, and they follow them for a season. Mm-hmm. They're all prose books, but I, I looked at a whole bunch of them. So I started with books that were kind of similar to what I wanted to do, and then I branched out from there into like just reading straight up basketball history books. This is this is how nerds get into sports, by the way, because I'm like, yeah, those yeah. are good books. That's yeah. <laughs> I have also read all three versions of Friday Night Lights, and I have very cogent thoughts on all of those things. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, at the same time as as you're you're putting it together, like, where, where did the the structure of the story come from? Because it is one of those things where at first, you know, it, you're, it feels as if it's jumping around, and there's a there's a point and a direction. I'm curious how you approach that as a storyteller. Um, you know, how how early do you have it sorted out, or or is it just sort of sketches until you get to you know what you want your book to be? Yeah, I, I'm pretty meticulous in in planning now. So I I do a lot of outlining. I thumbnail the whole book before I started drawing it, and then e- even at the thumbnail stage, it went through multiple iterations. So first, second books, the publisher, mm-hmm. um, we have like this internal, uh, like a group of like a, it's almost like a critique group of cartoonists that are published by first second Mm -hmm. and then we'll get together from time to time on uh you know on zoom and we will critique each other you know so so in that format i had shown all of my thumbnails and gotten notes from all these cartoonists that i really respect uh was it written up in like a a, like a a prose outline to begin with yeah it began as a prose outline and then i did like i did like really quick thumbnail sketches of of the whole book chapter by chapter Mm -hmm. and at that point i had figured out the structure so it began it began as just i was just going to focus on the team and then i started bringing in some history because i felt like reading about that like reading about the history of women's basketball affected the way i watched men's basketball you know or Mm -hmm. or reading about like the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Lakers back in 1948 affected how I watched this this game now. So I, I wanted that to happen for my readers as well. So I started sticking in the the history at how, that point. How long from sort of the time where you first had the germ of the idea or you'd said, this is a thing I'm going to work on before it sort of took shape in into a, a form that we would recognize now? And then from there, how much longer is it that, you know, you're actually – drawing the thing and, and, and really building it it took it took forever that book took so long <laughs> <laughs> it took me it took me five years to do from uh-huh. beginning to end and um i don't know at the end of the season i had a rough idea of which games i wanted to include and what mm-hmm. players i wanted to include and then at, and then i started figuring out where the history would hook in and by like 
I don't know. It must have it, maybe it took me maybe a year and a half mm-hmm. to, to b- before I kind of had the structure really solid. And this is with uh, a, a day job and a family and doing this other stuff. Well, at the, yeah, I guess yeah, yeah. Because I had a you know when I was following the team, that was my last year teaching, and then after that, I I left and I started working for DC Comics. So mm-hmm. I guess at that point, my day job was writing. I was writing Superman. I did t- ten issues of Superman. So that's what I did for the first year. Um, while I was working on Dragon Hoops. Um, and I guess sort of to get into the cartooning of it, um, one of the things that I, I, I found is really interesting is that, you know, in comics, I'm, I'm putting air quotes around it, so many things are, you're able to tell people apart by the costumes and all that stuff, and, and you've got your cartooning to rely on, but, you know, no costumes like that. And so you've got all these different, versions of humans you know real people that you need to be able to tell apart and there's there's a bit where um i'm sorry the punjabi kid whose name i'm trying to remember jeevan jeevan right and, yeah you know and and you talked about how you had to draw his hair a certain way so that he didn't think he looked stupid and you look cool but yeah. he didn't look like one of the african-american kids and i just thought that was really interesting I, I don't tend to think about that process especially in i guess documentary type comics you know um I guess, you know, how, how did that come together for you? Did you just sort of start with a bunch of sketches and then refine them over time? Yeah, I, I was I was sketching the kids um, mm-hmm. during the season. So I put it up on Tumblr, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and for the most part, they did not give me any feedback on it. But I would hear it like I'd hear it from from the coaches. I'd be like, oh, you, one of the coaches would be like, you got to change the way you draw this kid because the other kids are making fun of him for it. <laughs> <laughs> and there'd be there'd be stuff like that and and jeevan was like that that incident in the book where jeevan comes and asked me to redraw his hairline um that was one of the few times where a kid actually came up and, and talked to me about how it was how it was drawn them yeah so it was uh yeah it, i mean it was i feel like it was kind of an organic process like I, like throughout the season i would just do these sketches and i try to figure out how each of the kids look and i i teach with another cartoonist or i taught with another cartoonist tin fam who right now is doing this amazing webcomic uh, on Instagram. Um, you know, and, and we've collaborated together. He's also been published by, by First Second. Um, he, would, he would, like, critique me. You know, he would see some of my sketches and be like, that does not look like Ivan. And then we would sit <laughs> in his classroom after school and we'd try to work it out on the, the whiteboard. It's one of the things I really like about the art of cartooning is that sort of distilling down, you know, into somebody who looks like a human you know and you can see there you know that there's a real person behind it but also it's it's so uh uh minimal and and you've you've got to communicate that with every panel you know that this is that person that you're talking about um you know and you've got a bunch of kids who are you know mostly black kids there's there are different heights but they've all got um you know like the one kid has a tattoo i'm like all right that's him you know and his hair is a little different it's just it's just part of the artistry of cartooning that i love it's 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 just such a cool aspect of this art form i think yeah i think you have to get all of your characters to look different right mm-hmm. in order for your your book to be readable they sure. all have to look oh as nearly instantly recognizable as you can and that's actually i mean when i was a kid i remember thinking this reading superhero comics like a lot of the times i just felt like when they were out of costume it was hard it was hard to tell yeah. who was who um, and I, I think it's different now. I think there are, there are plenty of great artists. I think Dan Mora is one of them mm-hmm. who um, the, the characters look different when even when they're out of costume, you can tell who's who. Yeah. I had, I, had a, I had a friend and he drew an Avengers book once and the team was like, 
Captain America and Clint Barton. And so it was, there was like four blonde white guys. And he was like, it was a nightmare. I just didn't know yeah. what to do about that. Um, yeah. Without the costumes, it was a whole thing. So uh, what I found is, is, uh, was interesting about this is that I did not necessarily expect. I, you know, I saw, I saw a dragon on the front. I saw your name. I thought this will be. Uh, some sort of Chinese myth will be involved with this, and that was not the case at all. And and I'm wondering, did this feel like a, a big departure for you as a storyteller? Yes, yes, it did. Yeah. Yes, it did. So so it was colored by my friend Lark Pian, who had colored a couple of my other books before. She did uh, Boxers and Saints, mm-hmm. and then she also colored American Born Chinese. And like while we were working together, we we had multiple conversations where we were like, dude, if we had known it was going to be like this, we would not have started this project. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I mean, it, there's there's the whole like um, depicting real people thing mm-hmm. yeah. that was yeah. really really tricky. I, I ended up having to get the whole book checked over by a lawyer, um, and then and then there's the whole like I, there's also this. I was like constantly struggling with this idea, you know, like by cartooning it, I was automatically lying because mm-hmm. it doesn't look the way it does on my page, right? Like the actions uh, simplified and it's more exaggerated than it actually was. And I was constantly struggling with this thing about how do you tell a nonfiction story in comics? And even beyond that, like for, for Lark, um, she had to use all these photo references. We were constantly looking up like, you know, how, how uniforms looked for different teams in different parts of the country. And, and shoes, the sh- like shoes in, in basketball culture are a big deal. So <laughs> yeah, we, we had to figure out. out a way of, yeah, right? Like we had to figure out how to simplify it so that it's cartoonable, mm-hmm. you know, but not ha- still have it be recognizable. Did, I mean, I assume it must have felt like you were on the book for a really long time and it was pretty far out of your comfort zone. Like, At what point were you feeling, feeling pretty comfortable with it? I, I mean, like, I would guess there's a lot of doubt, like, what the hell am I doing? It, pretty far yeah. in. Yeah, It doesn't yeah, read I, on the page, but it's so thank different. Thank you. I appreciate that. But no, no, no. I, I don't know if I ever felt 100% comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't just – it's definitely the subject matter, but it wasn't just the subject matter. It was also just the fact that I was doing nonfiction for the first time. Right. Uh, that was probably the scariest part was that and, – and it wasn't just like nonfiction about strangers. It was nonfiction about people who like I'm friends with, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm still in touch with even now. Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting because also, you know, I, I was thinking like some of them were students at the school where you were teaching at the time. And I thought that is a very fraught uh, set yes. of relationships. Um, yeah, that's why that's why I had to use the lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you don't want to have a booby miles situation. Um, yeah, there's, but I mean, w- one of the things that came out with the lawyer was, well, because some of their games were televised, they are considered public figures to mm-hmm. some extent. But but I also like I was really wary of pushing too far, you know. Like if they didn't want to share something, I didn't want to push into it. Sure. So I had to figure out how to deal with that too in in the narrative. Hmm. Um, well, it's interesting is that you say it's it's the first time that you had done um, nonfiction, and in my mind, I I had I had thought of American Born Chinese as a much more autobiographical book. So I actually read it after I finished this book, and I was like, oh, it's not exactly in the same way. And, and I had thought that sort of, you know, I'd sort of, it had been like however many years since it came out, and I hadn't gone back and read it, and I said, oh, this is, this is not actually you in this book. I'm sure there's elements of it and everything. But, um, and as I'm reading this book, I knew that I was going to be talking to you, and, and you're in this book all over the place. And I was like, I didn't know this about him. I didn't, you know, you're, so you're also sharing a lot about yourself. 
Yeah, How did you yeah. feel about that? That that was a little scary too. Um, it's so a very American indie Chinese. comics thing to do, you know. But <laughs> but I realize if it's the first time that you've done it, you've been around for a while for it to be a new move. Yeah, I've always been scared. You know, I I, I remember being in my twenties and reading Joe Matt and being like, oh my gosh, yeah. I, I I really admired his his courage, but I just didn't know if I would ever be able to pull something like that off. And American Born Chinese, it's fiction, but it, I mean, it pulls pretty heavily from my own life. But that layer of fiction allows me to like it's a it's protection right yeah. whereas with with this one you know in the very first draft one of the first drafts that i showed um that critique group in for a second i was only in the prologue and the epilogue and oh, then really? they were like you you need to put yourself more into this book so i did but it was it was not it was not super easy to do <laughs> my my wife is actually also a pretty a pretty private person mm-hmm. so we had lots of talks about how she was going to end up in the book and what she would look like in the book she comes off well in the book which i, I think <laughs> was a good choice on your part well thanks thanks yeah <laughs> the idea she like, is, she's, she's the smarter unhappy. person in the house yeah. who keeps you where you need she to definitely be. is but she's still unhappy with the way i draw her hair she's like my hair does not look like that which is true which is true <laughs> you're giving but. her anonymity there's nothing wrong with that yeah, exactly. That's what she wanted. Um, so let me let me let me leave that behind for now and 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 go back. Um, what? How did you come to comics? Were you were you you know had you always wanted to work on comics or was that a thing that came later? When I was when I was really little, I wanted to be an animator. Like in <laughs> early elementary school, I really wanted to be an animator, and I like would try to draw in that Disney way, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then in fifth grade, I started collecting comics. DC Comics number 57 presents. DC Comics presents number 57 was my very first comic. It had Superman in it, and it had the Atomic Knights in it. And after that, I was kind of hooked. Um, I I bought mostly Marvel comics when mm-hmm. I was a kid, but um, but I just I loved it. I loved comics. So ever since then, I've I've wanted to make comics. So I made some comics when I was in fifth grade, and then on and off throughout high school. And then after I graduated from college, I started self publishing. So that was like. You know, like like uh, um, Jeff Smith and and uh, Dave Sim and Colleen Doran mm-hmm. had all been self-publishing for a while there, and the, there was information about how to do it on the internet. So I looked up the information and I started figuring out how to do it myself. And had you? I mean, like, when did you come to the sort of realization that there was such a thing as comic creators, those people who did this as a job? I mean, obviously. Uh, you know, you you were a computer science teacher, so you you didn't that you didn't take that as your main route. But you, you know, was that you know, did you think that it wasn't achievable? Or my my parents, especially my dad, were always very adamant that it was not a viable career path. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like comics were not know, a viable career path. I, I've been in comics for a while, and he has a point. But <laughs> exactly right. I, that's what I think now too. I think he has, like now that I'm in my 40s, I'm like, dude, my dad totally had a point. <laughs> but um, but I would go to I would go to comic book conventions mm-hmm. and I'd see these people sitting up on panels and you know they're all clothed, they look like they've been eating. <laughs> so I just thought, it, well, pe- some people are doing it. Some people are doing it. But then it's it's exactly as you say, right? Like once you kind of get in, you realize, oh, it's actually it's actually a pretty hard thing. I remember having a conversation with Arthur Adams, who's one of my favorite artists when I was a kid. And it was one of the first times I'd ever met him. It was at a convention. He was sitting at a at his like artist alley table by himself. There was no line. That, for that his... always stuns me when there's like a legend. Right? And you're like, come on. 
Yeah, like, in Don Rosa, that happens to Don Rosa all the time. Yeah. I'm like, do people not know who this person is? <laughs> but I was talking to him, and he's like, he told me um, that he had to also draw video game covers to in order to, to make ends meet at the time. And I was like, dude, you are Arthur Adams. How is that even a thing? But now, now that I'm in comics, I realize why that's yeah. a thing. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny, because there, there's the bit in Dragon Hoops where you are contemplating, you know, moving along to doing comics full-time and and i had like a little oh i don't know if that's a good idea because yeah. <laughs> i also i'm in the future so i not for you just for comics in general and media yeah, and everything. yeah, yeah um yeah. but yeah th- there was that actually and i meant to bring this up there it, there is that motif of the step through the whole thing um yeah. which i really appreciated and liked how early did that come as, as part of it because it it's sort of littered throughout the whole thing and it, i was like well what's this and then by the end you know it's 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 pretty clear what that is, and it, it's such a can-do kind of thing that has to do with sports and everything. But it, it's, you know, very positive, and, and I like, I love it as as a concept. Oh well, thank you, thank you. It it was it was fit, like it, it it happened during the season. Mm-hmm. You know, I I just I was just struck by how courageous it was for these kids to step out onto that court. You know, like at some point during the season, because I had never been an athlete myself, I never made this realization. But at some point during that season, I realized, you know, a lot of the things that are happening on the court, these kids are going to remember even when they're old, old men, you know, like there are going to be 60, 70 year old men. And these are going to be some of the most vivid memories of their entire lives. And some of these memories are going to be bad. You know, like Mm -hmm. I watched some of them flub the ball or like miss a shot or air ball or, um, and I, you know, I heard the, the, the crowds booing them and stuff. Uh, I was like that, that actually, t- those are pretty high stakes for a teenager. That takes a lot of courage to step out onto that court with those stakes, you know, knowing that what happens is going to stay with you for decades. Can I, can um, I give you a, a real life example of this? And then we can, yeah, please. So I am not a natural athlete. I never have been. I'm not good at it. I'm not fast. I don't jump well. I played pickup basketball with my friends in the first part of high school because that's who was there. And I was like, well, I I guess I'll do this thing. And I really, it was like Jordan was a thing then. So it was like, it was sort of of the time. And I worked my, I'd never played sports in any way, uh, like organized. And I worked my ass off and I got put on the 10th grade JV team. Um, And again, I never played organized sport. Right. I never played though. I, I mean, I was like, I was, I worked so hard in practice and everything and we lost by 40 every time. And I got like 10 minutes of time and I had one shot. I got one shot and it was an air ball and I'm 43. Like I can, I can live in that moment. I I know exactly what it's like. Uh, It it is, it's just, it's terrible. And to hear you describe it that way, you're absolutely right. And I don't even have the glory days and I have, I'm self-effacing enough that I can see why it's funny, but no, you're absolutely right that that totally uh, sticks with you. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's (laughs) something about the teenage years in general that just stick with you, right? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Moments like that are just, I I think if they happen to you as an adult, it's not as big of a deal, but for whatever reason, everything's just amped up when you're in high school. That's a, you should do a, you should, you should write a piece about that, man. I I think there's more of a story there. Yeah. There, yeah, no, there. Now yeah, there's a whole thing. I think I could go with that. So let me, let me. You're seeing the kids do that. Like, do you, like, what, like, as you're doing it, do you draw a parallel to, like, you know, in comics, that is just as terrifying and and risky, and you're putting yourself out there. You know, when you you put your first self-published work out, or did you not think of that like that till later? 
yeah, it was it was actually so what was happening during that season was I you know my agent got a call from DC Comics with that offer um, to write Superman and that felt really scary to me like sure. that like that my um, my initial instinct was just to turn it down mm-hmm. because it, it like felt that like first a, it, like I can't do that like the first yeah, instinct yeah. to do that yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah like I was really excited and then I was also like I don't know I don't know if I should do that and it was also it was also like walking away from a regular paycheck and mm-hmm. this school community that I really loved that I'd been a part of for you know almost two decades at that point wow. so there there are lots of things that felt really scared of me and and that was the connection between being like my own life and uh and and what i was watching on the court at the time so did you you, i I assume you went to school for computer science i did yeah i did yeah i got a degree in computer science and then and then you started teaching i'm guessing even there were two decades it was pretty soon after it was pretty soon i i worked as a software developer for a couple years Mm -hmm. and then i realized i didn't like it that much and i it was a, it was fine, but I, I I would have rather been a teacher, so I applied for a job when I got it. So it's always interesting because, um, as I understand it, software engineering is a very fine line of work. But I've I've always thought I don't I don't think I could literally do that. And you've got you're a person who's got this degree, but also you know there's a very strong creative streak in you and a desire to to make things and draw. Like do you, do you feel like those were at odds? Uh sometimes I I actually think you know now that I'm a little older I do think, I mean. Software development, coding is actually a very creative yeah. skill, right? But you just have to put yourself in the right spot. I think there's there's some coding jobs where feel, things feel a little more rote, and then some coding jobs where it requires a lot of creativity. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I, I felt like maybe I didn't look hard enough, or I. But at the same time, I. I'm really happy that I got to teach. Well, that, you know, and that was, that was my next question. I mean, you, you did that. It seems like you had an affection for it. Um, like, did you did you enjoy being a teacher? Yeah, I really did. I really mm-hmm. did. I actually, like my, so after American War Chinese came out in 2006, and pretty shortly after that, I went part-time at my job. So we were okay. a, um, we were on a block schedule. Um, and what that meant was I only had to go on campus every other day. So that was like, I did that for years where I would stay at home one day to work on my comic. And then the next day I would go and teach. And it felt like it was so balanced, you know, like teaching is really extroverted and making comics is super introverted. Mm -hmm. It just felt really balanced. It's interesting because I, I think, I don't know, I had it in the back of my mind somewhere that you were a teacher, but for some reason in my head, I had turned that into art teacher or something like that. And then so I was reading the book, and I said, oh, computer science teacher. And then I was like, that's a lot of stuff going on for some reason. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why I did that. But um, So let, let me go back, I guess, to you know, you, you end up with this degree. You're, you're going to look into being a software engineer. Like, are you making comics all along like as you're doing this other stuff? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was self-publishing mm-hmm. all the way through. Like pretty, pretty soon, when did you within start? a year of graduating okay. high college, I started self-publishing. Um, and then I would, I would just do it, you know, it was just the side thing. So, uh, it was easier before I was like married and sure. stuff, but I, I would just like, anytime I got home from work, I would just work on my comic. So, you know, I had a roommate, he would watch TV and then I would kind of watch TV and kind of be working on my mm-hmm. comic at the same time, you know? Um, what was your goal with, with making comics? Like what kind of comics did you ultimately want to make? Did you want like a career in mainstream comics or did you... You know, you're a writer and an artist, but you've you've you know written some things without drawing it. Like like what had, what was your ideal? What did you hope to do? 
in the beginning it was just a self-published one book you know oh, really? like in the, yeah in the in the very beginning i just thought if if i don't self-publish a comic before i die i will die unhappy <laughs> so i have to do one so it took me a whole year it took me a whole year to figure out the printing process and you know figure out what diamond comics was and all that kind of stuff so uh, it's and, not even just like doing it but like literally self-publishing and getting in stores that's is that yeah is that Gordon Yamamoto or was this earlier yeah, than that? Yeah, that okay. was it. That was so the first your, thing I did. That's your first work. Uh-huh. That wow. was the first thing I did. Yeah. Yeah. As as an adult. That was the first thing I did right. as an adult. And then and then, you know, I was going to comic book conventions at the time as well, like while I was working on Gordon Yamamoto. Um and and that was a really bleak period in comics. So this was like mm-hmm. late nineties. Marvel Comics was had just declared bankruptcy and i remember like going to my first san diego and on the sunday of of san diego it was like a ghost town in the exhibit hall you know mm-hmm. it felt like there were more exhibitors than there were attendees i remember that. so I, the first time you I remember that on, i went in 2000 the first time i ever went okay and, so it was around the same time yeah. right like so you remember it was a whole other thing and like you know five years into that uh, like i won't go now i mean i don't get paid to do it anymore anyway but i'm like it's not it's too much. It used like that first year I ever went, I had never really experienced comics. And I remember standing there and looking to my left and, you know, Will Eisner is just standing there. And it was still early enough that a lot yeah. of those guys were still around and you could see them, you know. And I just thought, this is amazing. This would be like if you were a film fan and you went in Martin Scorsese is just standing there. Exactly. And, and over the next span of years, it it changed, you know, because celebrity got more involved with it and everything. But that first yeah. bit and it and you know, it San Diego was big, but it was more than just like everyone was there. If you wanted to talk to somebody, they were right there. And I was amazed. And that changed, I think. Anyway. Yeah. 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 That totally changed. That totally I mean it felt it felt much more like a small town, right? Like mm-hmm. the comics industry was a small town. But I, I do think there was also at, at least in the it was starting to evaporate in the early two thousands, mm-hmm. but in the late nineties there was like a there's like a certain kind of depression yeah. that was in the American comic scene. I remember hearing a panel where they were comparing comics to poetry. Like somebody was comparing comics to poetry um, and uh, and not in a good way. So no <laughs> offense to poets out there, but what they were saying was, you know, poem, poetry used to be a mass medium. Everybody read, everybody who could read would read poetry. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of dwindled and now it's like this, this real niche market where you have a, a tiny group of people relatively speaking to the population of America, writing and reading poetry, right? And his prediction was that comics was going to go the same thing. It was going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where it would be this tiny niche that was just producing it for themselves and nobody would be able to make money off of it. So when I heard that, I was like, I'm never going to make a career out of comics. I'm just going to do it for fun because I want to be part of that niche, right? <laughs> so when you went at that, you know, like, I mean, I don't know who ruined your dreams, but like when you went at that point where you like, was, was there a point where you think bef- maybe before Gordon Yamamoto where you thought I can make this my career or did that sort of come along later? Or yeah, just, I think yeah. it was, it was pretty early on. I don't remember who said that, but it was pretty early on that I was like, this is, this is not going to be a viable thing, you know? It's not so, and I was I was like going through a really snobby period where I had mm-hmm. discovered uh, alternative comics, so I wasn't interested in you know doing anything for the big two. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it it really didn't seem viable at all. You know, I, I remember like um, like uh, Jeff Smith. I really admired Jeff Smith. 
you know, read all these interviews about how he built his career and started self-publishing. And then I remember he went with uh, Image Comics for a little while. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of like a, it felt like he did that. I don't know if this is true or not, but it, but from the outside, um, it felt like he did that because he was like taking cover in a collapsing market. Mm-hmm. It was just really like, like to go from, to go from how the comic book industry felt in the 90s to now is just like a, I mean, it feels like a miracle. It feels like a dream. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and you know, it, it was it was such a weird time, you know. And, and it's just I don't know. We we could go over on that stuff forever, but you made it through. Is the point? Um, <laughs> so you know, like when when you when you're working on on Gordon Yamamoto, did you have a and and I I have read it, but it's been it's been a while. Um, you don't have to was, read that. No, no, no. I have. I really no. I, I like it. I, I, I do. Oh, thanks. Well, you but, know, like I yeah. have a thing about you know smaller stories and and like that uh, kind of cartooning. And I think that at that time of year, or I mean, at that time in in comics history, there was more of that, and it's kind of not a place for it now. Like you know, that mm-hmm. indie comics move in the late nineties, early two thousands. That's like my favorite thing. You know, yeah. So many uh, wonderful kinds of stories come out of that. You know, like what. I guess, like, what kind of story was it you were wanting to tell, or what kind of mark did you want to make as a cartoonist? Yeah, I, I guess I should say that. So we, you know, we uh, we just talked about how the '90s felt kind of depressing, but it, it actually wasn't all of comics that felt depressing. Right? Sure. I remember, like, uh, like San Diego felt depressing, yeah. but then Ape felt alive, right? Mm-hmm. The Alternative Press Expo felt alive, and it's exactly what you were talking about. Like, there was a there's sort of this no money no rules kind of thing where people were like I'm not going to make money on this anyway so I'm just going to do exactly the kind of comic that I want and and a lot of the the mini comics that were coming out I remember I remember finding a a Matt Madden comic mm-hmm. in the in the, the around that time and just being kind of blown away by it he had like silk screened the cover mm-hmm. and um and it was it was like this Xerox thing but it looked so beautiful as an art object I, I... Uh, you know, I think that was a time where you could find things that spoke to you, and and you're right. Like the, I mean, people were making a living out of it, but the the risk was, you know, it was it was just them. But you could still sort of get somewhere. I remember, I always think of Box Office Poison as the first sort of story I read. Oh that, yeah, where yeah, you know, like I I read that book. I read it in one day, and and I know that Alex who worked on it for years and years and years and years. Um, yeah. you know, and I just I've never read anything like this, and it, you know, you, you live in it for a while, and I don't get books like that anymore but it seems like they're everywhere at that point strangers in paradise or uh yeah, you know, strangers in paradise. dozens of right. dozens of other things and, and and i'm constantly looking for books like that but they're harder to find uh in the same way i think i think first second is a place you know where, where there's some more of that top shelf isn't quite as reliable in that way as it used to be but you know jeffrey brown back then like that was all yeah, sort of coming right. it was a really good time that's right that's right that's that's exactly right it felt like it felt like really really personal work was mm-hmm. was coming out uh, really rapidly, right? Uh, and um, it, it, there's a certain intimacy in those stories. Yes, that I guess m- maybe are, is a little harder to come by now. Um, I'm sure it exists. I think it's just harder to find. You know, it's, it's hard yeah. to get noticed, and and sort of uh, oddly enough, I don't think the internet well, actually helped those people. Yeah, I, I do think um, I do think like there's, I think that aesthetic of being personal and um, and vulnerable mm-hmm. has like a lot of the comics in the middle grade and YA space, it kind of comes out of that tradition, right? Uh, and it's not, I, Box Office Poison, I felt like, was much more adult. Yeah. Uh, and Strangers in Paradise, too, was was more on the adult side, right? 
So, um, so I do think I do think there are comics that follow that tradition, but they're probably just aimed at younger audiences now. I, I think it might have been a very Gen X thing at a very Gen X time. Yeah, isn't, yeah. isn't you know maybe we're not buying the comics like we used to, so that, that could be on me. Um, anyway, so I, I am I am curious about sort of the tradition, uh, the trajectory you wanted to take as a storyteller, like what kind of books you wanted to do, how how you wanted to be known. Yeah, I I think I just wanted to to do books that, um, I don't even know if I had a real plan. I just wanted to do books that I wanted to do. Like I I, I knew I gravitated towards magical realism, mm-hmm. uh, and and early on, it's like with Gordon Yamamoto and the King of the Geeks, and I did a I did a series after that called uh, Loyola Chin and the San Peligran Order. I was just figuring it out. I was figuring out how to tell like stories within magical realism that had some kind of a fantasy element in it. Uh, but was still grounded in like everyday everyday life, uh, and eventually I, th- I feel like American War Chinese that took me forever to do too. That took me like five years to do, and that was like me really working on it. You know, like I had done I had done these two smaller stories, and I felt comfortable enough to dive into something a little bigger mm-hmm. and a little deeper. When you're doing a story like American Born Chinese, you know, do you feel like you were telling? Is it you're telling your story and that's just what it is, or are you telling us? Are you trying to make a point about a Chinese American experience? Because it's one of those things where, like, it's your identity, but when you say it, you're also making that the identity of the book. And, I, and I'm I'm always interested in that as a, as a thing where we're looking at sort of I'm saying diverse because there's not a better word for it right now. But you know, you are who you are, and when you put that book out, like, oh, this is a book about a Chinese experience, where it's also just a story you know about your experience like are you are you basically are you thinking of that when you're putting the book together or does that come up sort of later? yeah i mean i did i did think about wanting to talk about my cultural heritage mm-hmm. for sure yeah I, I mean that was that was definitely the focus of the book but it, it, it is my experience right of being chinese american uh and and the reason why i did that was you know i i'd done gordon yamamoto i did loyola chin i had these asian american protagonists but i just felt like the the Asian Americanness was not, it wasn't front and center, but I mean, I, I didn't want it to be either. But then at that point, I just felt like, you know, this is something I've thought about since I was a kid. Yeah. I want to do something where this is the, this is the focus. This is what it's going to be about. Had, had you, had that been a kind of story that you felt you hadn't seen a lot? Oh, um, I mean, there was a, there's a mini comic at the time. I forget the guy's name who did it. That was called Yellow Kid. There were a few. There are a few comics that were uh, about that, and then you know, you know, there there are like Asian American classics mm-hmm. that were that were out at the time, like in prose. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't think I consciously thought about whether I'd seen that book or not. It was more, you know, I I saw these I saw these books that these graphic novels that I admired because of their intimacy, like Blankets, you know, yeah. or uh, or Goodbye Chunky Rice. Um, a lot of the ones that you're talking about too, yeah. um, and I just thought if I'm gonna achieve that level of uh, vulnerability and intimacy, it has to be about something that mm-hmm. means a lot to me. That something that's helped me figure out my place in the world, right? It's it's very interesting how the sort of conversation has adapted, you know, since then, uh, and 
so like I said, I went back and I read American Born Ch- Chinese again, and I hadn't read it. What was it? Two thousand six? I, I think I read it. Mm-hmm. it yeah, mm-hmm. you know. And at the time, you know, I I I'm I'm reading through it, and, and I you know I recognize a world of the eighties and and sort of what at the time I think we I would have thought of as innocuous racism because I was a little kid mm-hmm. and didn't know the difference, and then sort of to look back on it now and think, wow, oh, this is I lived in a horrible time. <laughs> you know, like, for somebody like you or anybody who's a, who's who's a little bit different, is that it was just so normal and accepted to be shitty to people for no reason. And and now we talk about this all the time, but I think that like this book for me was sort of the beginning of understanding that conversation. It's for me to go, well, I'm not a racist person, and then I would think back, and like, and as little kids, we were terrible, and I and I and I like to think that they don't do that anymore. But you know, as you're, it's like, is it is it difficult to cartoon about this? Because I'm reading, you know. Cousin um, Chinky, you know, is it hard to draw that over and over in a book like this? Because it's it's ugly. And also at the same time, you're kind of trying to make it funny. And that, there's a real difficult tension there, I think. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, the 80s were uh, the 80s were a weird time, right? The 80s definitely yes. were a really weird time. And that, and that was definitely I, I feel that way about myself, too. When I when I look back, like uh, like, uh, you know, homophobic comments in the eighties were just so commonplace and it was, it was almost weird if you didn't say it at school. Mm -hmm. Like that's how, that's how rampant it was. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and there are a lot of conversations I think back to now, um, that I have with friends that I just feel, I feel kind of, I I feel ashamed of, um, even, even about, even about my own culture. I, I think, um, you know, when I started realizing that I was different from most of my classmates, one way I took out that difference was by picking on the kids that were immigrants that had come. Like I was born in America, so I'd pick on the Asian kids. And, and you were, were I mean, not you, but you, you know, stand in for you and this characters. Pretty ruthless. Like, like there's a couple yeah, times I'm like, yeah. oh, that's terrible. And I've seen that theme, you know, in, in other books uh, about about uh, similar experiences. And uh, I mean, I think that's the kind of brave, you know, uh, uh, like raw sort of vulnerable thing that you're talking about. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, for for the cousin Chinky character, it was it was kind of a, a fine line, mm-hmm. you know. I, I I did. I I think about this a lot because I did American Born Chinese as a mini comic, so I was printing up like I don't know fifty of them, and I'd sell sixteen of them. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd sell them through Comic Relief in Berkeley, or I'd sell them at like Ape, mm-hmm. you know. And so most of the readers of those mini comics I knew personally, right? So I could I could I could be reasonably sure that they would take it the way I meant it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think sometimes about how the story would have changed had I known at the time that it was going to become a graphic novel that would be published by a publisher, you mm-hmm. know? So I don't does, know, I don't know. How does that happen? Like, where do you go from being selling 15, 16 copies of this thing to having it be, you know, this this real beautiful little volume put up by First Second. I know First Second showed up. There was that. They, they yeah, appeared. First Second showed up. That was that was the big thing. I, and I was also friends. I mean, I still am. I'm friends with a guy named Derek Kirk Kim, who mm-hmm. I think is, you know, a, among the most talented cartoonists, uh, you know, working today. So he he does more work in animation now yeah. than he does in comics. I remember but. his name in comics a lot more at the time of this book than now. So I guess he yeah, got, yeah, got a real yeah. job. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> he got a job that comes with health insurance now. So um, he did a book called Same Difference mm-hmm. that came out in 2003, 
I want to say, and it won all three awards. It won the Eisner, the Harvey, and the Ignatz. And after that, publishers started approaching him for his next book. So one of the publishers was for second. Uh, and at that point, they didn't even have a book out yet. They had just formed and they were putting together their first season. So Mark Siegel, the editor for second, he actually flew out from New York to San Francisco uh, and Derek invited me along. So Derek invited me along. I met Mark uh, after that. At some point, Mark read American Born Chinese. At that point, it was like 80% done, I want to okay. say. And then he, he signed me up. And then, uh, I, I mean, I'm, it was. I mean, it became a thing fairly quickly. It felt like all of a sudden, you know, you had the it book. Uh, for it was, it was, it was a crazy year. Yeah, the year that it came out was was nuts. Was nuts. I, I remember uh, before the book was released, um, I went to San Diego and I did a, a signing at the booth, and they were like. You know, usually when I do a signing, when I did a signing back then, I still have signings like this from time to time. But it would be like three people over the course of a day, right? And and it was it was it wasn't like a crazy like Jim Lee line, but it was definitely more than three people uh, over the course of that signing, and and that was kind of shocking to me. And then after it came out, um, when it was nominated for uh, the National Book Award, that was when like that that was that was just a really crazy week. Um, a, a, How a long reporter. was it from the time from when it came out to when you got that that nomination? It was like maybe a month. Oh my god! Maybe a month. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty soon. Maybe maybe two. It was a month or two. I want to say it was a month actually. Like it came out in September, and I think I got the nomination in October. And mm -hmm. I remember like being in my classroom, and a <laughs> reporter walks in from a Chinese language newspaper wanting to interview me, and I just thought it was so crazy and weird. Plus, people could apparently just walk into classrooms back then, right? It's because it's because she did not know the protocol at a at an American school, because <laughs> she was a Chinese language speaker. It was like, I mean, it was like my auntie walking in mm -hmm. and demanding to talk to me immediately while I was like like in the middle of giving a lecture. Mm -hmm. you, <laughs> that's inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you? I, I can't remember. Do you speak Chinese or no? I do, but I speak okay. like a I don't know, like a six year old dude. Okay. I'm not I'm not awesome at it. It's one of those one of the things in the book is that, you know, obviously you're you're very steeped in what I believe is real Chinese mythology. I I don't really know to compare it to, but like was this was that was all the mythology, you know, that is included in American born Chinese, like that kind of stuff. Is are those, you know, stories that you grew up with and things that were like easily uh, you know, melded into your story, or was that like also more research kind of stuff? They, they were stories that I grew up with. My mom told me Monkey King stories when I was a kid, but I did also have to research it. And the the version of the Monkey King that I do in American Board Chinese is very Americanized. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's definitely blended with Western elements. Mm -hmm. um, I, originally, like when, after Gordon Yamamoto, The King of Geeks, I, I actually wanted to do a Monkey King story. I wanted to just do a straight adaptation of Journey to the West. And when I looked into it, I realized... There are like a billion adaptations of the Monkey King story of Journey to the West in Asia. And I just, I didn't see a point in doing it. Is there a, I mean, is the sort of um, analogy of him, uh, uh, I was, I was going to say anglicizing himself, but just trying to conform, like, is that part of that story? Or is that something well, you'd he, add it to? Yeah, there, there's, um, he's, so in the original, he's like super angry mm -hmm. right he's he's like really really angry because the gods won't accept him 
Um, but there is, I would say there's less self-doubt in the original than in my version. Like in the original, he's just he's just really pissed off and he just like beats everybody up and that's kind of it. <laughs> like, and then he gets punished. And, then he gets and punished. is he so considered to be like a heroic character or he is, okay. he is. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the, the portion of, uh, his story that I adapted American War Chinese is just the very beginning. So in the original, he goes on to have all these adventures mm-hmm. and over the course of those adventures, he achieves spiritual enlightenment. Right. So he, the, the story is about how he goes from this really arrogant, selfish character to being selfless mm-hmm. cool so uh uh like I was, so the, the book is about to be released like what do you think is going to happen with american born chinese like you think it'll you know you'll, i'll sell some copies and we'll see it as okay did you have any idea what was coming yeah i mean my my thought uh was um i did not see what i was coming mm-hmm. my, my thought was i was gonna have this you know graphic novel that i could show my parents you've done it you've printed a book yes you know, that i printed but... a book yeah 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 i mean I, that i think that's that that was about it that was mm-hmm. what i was thinking you know like and then and then i had gotten an advance for it which was much more than i was expecting um and um yeah i i just thought it would it'll at least legitimize it to some extent with my parents mm-hmm. <laughs> um so how does that change your life when well, in a very short order it, it becomes yeah a i mean i mean the 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 biggest most practical thing that happened was i got to go part time at mm-hmm. my day job you know um and then uh and then it it opened up a bunch of different doors of opportunity to me like i i kept going with first second yeah. which i'm i'm really grateful for i did i did a bunch more books with them uh eventually it led to like i i was able to do like a a, a short strip with new york the new york times it's, it's, it was all that kind of stuff. I yeah. mean, it didn't really, I don't think it affected, like I didn't go full time at, 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 at cartooning right. until about five years ago. So uh, a lot of my daily existence was still the same. But it was just like I had more opportunities, I think, yeah. as a cartoonist than I did before that. It kind of sounds like the best of, I mean, I guess getting really rich and famous is one thing, but it's, you know, getting to do your work and being having the respect, but, you know, getting to still be yourself i guess to a a certain extent it's kind of interesting um let me skip ahead a little bit you know from that like how do you how do you get to superman from that and i know that that you you know there's a lot of books that happen in between there there boxers and saints which i i feel embarrassed but i don't know that we'll have a heck of a lot of time to talk about you know but that is a a massive undertaking and was it the green turtle is that is that correct yeah that's right that that's before superman too right Uh, so it was before superman yeah that stuff leads into there yeah, Superman. I mean, they, that off that offer. Just my my agent. Uh, she had some kind of conversation with somebody at DC. I'm not even sure who, and that offer came about, um, and and then uh, and then I said yes. Had you had you thought about that as about being it. a thing that you'd wanted that you wanted to do? I mean, obviously, well, I, something dark. Horse. Yeah, I'd been I'd been uh, I'd been approached by DC before mm-hmm. that. Okay, uh, a couple of times, and I'd always turned them down because. I didn't want to leave my day job, you know, and, and, um, and I was also focused on what I was doing for, uh, for a second. So with Superman, Superman's just like, I mean, he's the character that it's, it's just hard to turn down, right? Like Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, you just, how are you going to turn those characters down? So when they made that offer, I was like, I might have to leave my day job for this. Um, 
you know, so I, like I said, initially I was really hesitant. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it. My, but, um, but after thinking about it, I decided to take it. Did you, did you have to come up with an approach to the character? Or did they bring you something? Uh, it was a mix. It was a mix. I think I could talk about it now, but like, hmm. uh, the, the, the centerpiece of that, that 10 issue run was the reveal of, um, Superman's secret identity to the world, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that was not my idea. That that was actually that actually came from them. Yeah. Um, and and the fact that Lois Lane was the one to do the reveal that that also came from them. Um, but uh, but a, a lot of the other stuff did did come from like I I just think I was entering into the DC universe at a really strange time because sure. the mandate at the time was. Um, they wanted to change all three of their big characters. They wanted to change Batman. They wanted to change Superman and they wanted to change Wonder Woman. Right. So I, I got in there and the Superman that I wanted to actually write was the classic, like as classic of you can, as you can get of Superman, but that's not what they wanted. So I do think that that, that tension was just there through my entire run. I have to say though, like um, I, one of my favorite my favorite thing about those like working on those 10 issues was I got to work with Greg Pak. We'd been friends for a little while before that, but I really got to know him during that year. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I learned so much from him. Um, and Aaron Cooter and like, yeah. He's, and Pete, he's like Pete a real comic bro, Oh dude. Yeah. 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 Greg, Greg is like, uh, yeah, he, he really is. Yeah. He, he's, he's kind of a magic man. Everything he touches is awesome. Yeah. I like him a lot. Um, yeah. so you like, so as you're working on Superman, I mean, that's got to be a whole different grind than the kind of comics that you had been used to making. Was it a real culture shock? Yes. Yes, it was. It was a huge culture shock. It was huge, <laughs> huge culture shock. Like, like first the monthly uh, deadline cycle, I was not used to at all. <laughs> and then um, I'd always assume that when you read like a six issue arc, that the entire six issues would be like meticulously mapped out. <laughs> you know the way I would map out the way I would map out a graphic novel. That's how yeah, I no. assumed it would. Be. It's is it's not like that at all. I mean, I I think actually there there probably are some arcs that are mapped out like that. But at least in the books that I've worked on so far, it is almost never like that. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can do a super loose one, but things in the universe change and it affects how you tell your story. Yeah, it's like you're always kind of dodging yeah. and moving and adjusting and yeah, ugh. yeah, um, yeah. It, and you know who's great at that is Greg Pak. Greg Pak can take, like, the universe can totally pull the rug out from under him, and and he will be able to come up with a, a compelling workaround. So that I, I felt like that was something I really learned from him, or I, I at the very least I saw modeled by him. Actually, even sort of, I mean, I know that you you'd collaborated with other artists, but really to collaborate in a storytelling thing that must have been relatively new, also. Yeah, yeah, that was relatively new too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, it, it, it was just... So I had done um, the Avatar comics before that with Guruhiro. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but but even then, it was like 72-page volumes. The deadlines were not as tight as they were for, for DC. Uh, and and it was not as rapid fire. And, and for those books, we really did that, right? So three 72-page volumes were a single arc. And we, like broke the arc you know i outlined the arc and we we went through it with a fine-tooth comb before i started scripting it so that's what i was expecting to do with superman but that that wasn't how it worked but 
that was not you, you didn't say I, I've had enough of all of this and um and then we uh, I'm trying to remember if if New Superman went concurrently with that or or was after. No, New Superman. New Superman was uh, part of Rebirth. Right. So I've, it was, I've, I've it was definitely lost track of the specificities of everything that's yeah. happened in DC over the past. I don't know how many yeah. years, but it's the superhero universe, so it's all it's all wonky. So that's the that's that was the other thing too. Is you know like. My experience of DC Comics before and after Rebirth was <laughs> night and day. It just felt like a completely different place. Really? Writing in that universe felt completely different. Um, like things that felt like they were, I don't know, th- things that felt like they were, you were, it just felt like you were going against the wind mm-hmm. before Rebirth. And after Rebirth, it, there was like this burst of energy that I feel like you can see. You can even, you can, like when you read, the books that came out immediately after Rebirth, you could feel it in the books. Yeah. You know? But none of the people had really changed. You know? Yeah, that's what I was saying. You you were saying that, and I was like, well, that wasn't... Right? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah, all the people were the same. And in some of the books, the creative teams were even the same. Mm -hmm. But it just, the book itself felt renewed. It felt different. And, And after that, I was like, I think the DC Universe has like a personality of its own even that's that's greater than any one person in the company well the way that i think about that period is into rebirth and and you know i i think of jeff johns is is spearheading that and then so yeah. you know that i mean when you say energy and and you know that sort of moving forwardness that sounds like jeff to me you know yeah. i think that i remember that is that being a thing at the time it'd be you know somebody told me about his his story conference with people, you know, and, and how we just break everything down. Um, yeah. And I think DC is missing something with that right now. But um, I mean, is that what it felt like? Did you have, the yeah, experience with I, that? I, I had, I had a, I had a meeting with, with uh, Jeff. Yeah. And that was, at that point, that was my favorite meeting I'd ever had at DC Yeah, it, it is because he, like, he just, he's just such a wizard with story yeah. and, and, uh, and to, to break down, a story that I was working on with somebody who knew stories so well was amazing. Oh, is, is, yeah, I, I, I did a Q&A with him once. The first time I met him is he was, they were doing it at Hanley's and the guy was like, do you want to do this? And I was like, sure. And I um, started to talk and it was a big crowd. I don't think I've ever, I'd ever done that. And uh, I started talking about craft because I don't really know the details of everything. And I saw him go, oh, we can talk about story. And afterwards he's like, that was great because we got to talk. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know all the details of the superheroes going on. And like, it was just, it was one of the, like up to that point, it was like my favorite creator sort of interaction I'd had Yeah, in that yeah. same way. And I remember somebody telling me that he had, you know, had a meeting and there's people and, and he was like, tell me about that. You know, what's your word for Batman? And like, he's like, it's justice, you know, and he go and he could, mm. he could distill everything mm. down to the most basic element that says what that character is. And I, I always think of that. Yeah. Was, he's, he, he's stellar. He's, yeah. he's amazing as a storyteller. So, so yeah. tell me about New Superman, because uh, that that was a whole uh, other thing. Was that yours? That was not my idea. That no. was something that they brought to me. So DC DC wanted an Asian Superman, like a Chinese Superman, mm-hmm. and at first I didn't want to do it at all. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and then uh, they they kind of convinced me. I got convinced. I got like that same trip where I had a meeting with Jeff Johns. I also had a meeting with Jim Lee. So mm-hmm. I'm a huge Jim Lee fanboy. Sure. I have like a bunch of Jim Lee X Men comics at home uh in my parents house and and what he called me into his into his room you know he called me into his office he told me that it was his idea to have an asian member of the superman family and after that i was like i guess i have to do it because it's jimmy's idea 
So I did. It was super fun. That that was that was a ton of fun. Those twenty four issues were were great. Yeah, um, you got time you know, to run with that. Yeah, yeah. I'm really thankful. They were going to end at eighteen, and then we got a a, a a a little bit of a burst of energy, so we got an extra six out of it. It was it was great, and I got to work with uh, like for most of the run, it was Paul Kaminsky was mm-hmm. was the editor, and um, he's he's one of my favorite people in comics. He's great. Um, it's, it's funny cause it's an, he's, you know, I don't remember the character's name, but the new Superman, um, he's, he's kind of a jerk. He's not a, not yeah. a good dude. And, and you, you kind of bring him around, but he's all, he is kind of a jerk. And I, and I always find that interesting from a storytelling perspective that you've got to make him not likable. That's not the word. Um, but you know, you have to make him compelling enough for people to want to keep coming back. You know, is is that how you looked at that challenge? Or, or is, I did. Yeah. I I actually I actually I thought of him as the Monkey King, and I thought of the Monkey King's arc. You I know? was so thinking of that King. when I was saying it. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I I just thought that you know here's this character that I loved since I was a kid, who's sort of a, a cultural icon in China. This mm-hmm. this book is um, is set in China, so I just thought I would take this classic Chinese arc and apply it to to Superman. Was there any like was there a reaction to the book? You know, in the Chinese community, or, or did like did it get to China? Like, you know yeah, I've about? I've heard from Chinese readers, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, the the biggest critique I've heard from Chinese readers is that it reads like an American wrote it, which is totally true. I knew they were going to say that. <laughs> like, that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to do it was because mm-hmm. I I knew like there's an inherent Americanness in in my approach to a story that I wouldn't be able to get rid of. Well, you're American. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I grew up on American stories. Yeah. I grew up within. You know, American storytelling traditions. But that so blend just and hybrid is supposed to be, you know, that's the thing that, that's supposed to, yeah. you know, connect all those things. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I, I had to make peace with that before I even mm-hmm. said yes. So I knew that was going to happen. But overall, I feel like, um, you know, the, the, the feedback that I've gotten from Chinese readers has been positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess which brings us up to just this week, um, or when you're listening to this probably will have been last week, you your first issue of uh, Shang-Chi come out uh, from Marvel. Um, have yeah. You been, have you have you have you been away? From, oh no! Oh my God! I'm not skipping over Superman versus Smashes the Clan. By the way, I can't I can't do it. <laughs> uh, that that was that was delightful. Oh, thanks. I, Thank I, you. I mean, that... really, it was one like you know, Connor and I we do this podcast, and when that that came out, you know, that should not have worked in that way where you you have a story ugh, that is that is um taking place far in the past, and you're dealing with you know very difficult subject matters and it's Superman. And, uh, I thought, I thought it really rode the line, uh, really nicely and sort of having a message and being fun, but not being overbearing in either of those ways. And where did that come from? Well, that was, I mean, I know it was was a radio uh, show. Yeah. Yeah. It's an adaptation of an old radio show. It it was a conversation that I had with Marie Javins and and Bob Harris. Mm -hmm. And, um, at, at the time DC was just getting interested in, um, doing something for the the kids market, you know, uh, and and we were we were we were talking about it, and this uh, the storyline from the old Superman radio show I had read about in Freakonomics, so it always stayed with me, hmm. and when this opportunity came up, I proposed it, and they they went for it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think uh, the 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 big thing about that project is I got to work with Guru Hiru who I had done five books in the Avatar Last Airbender series with. And I just think that they're, they're among the best cartoonists working in 
the the world of comics right now. They're just yeah. so good, you know. What th- that's two people because I remember we were people. talking about the book. I was trying to figure it out, and someone was like, "I think it's two people," and I was like, yeah. "Oh, I don't." And like, I don't. I don't think the website was in English, so I couldn't figure it out. And uh, yeah, but I mean, like, it was. Yeah. It was another one of those things that it, it may not have it, it just worked really perfectly, but it may not have seemed like it on paper, you know. But but yeah, sort, sort of. It wasn't like a fully manga style. It was again a blend, uh, you know. For, it was a blend for you know, yeah. We we wanted we feel. we told them to blend uh, Fleischer. We asked them to blend Fleischer Superman with manga, mm-hmm. and they just they just I don't know they nailed it. They're they're just so good. Everything they do is good. Absolutely, it's a hundred percent. Um, no, I loved that book. It was uh, it was a real highlight, and it's one of those things where, oh, this is a perennial book. You can give this to people, and and you know, it isn't it isn't uh, sidestepping around the. I mean, obviously, it's Superman smashes the clan, so it's very upfront, you know, with with what it's saying. Um, well, thanks, thank you, yeah. thank you for reading it. No, no problem. I, I we've recommended it to many people. It's a great it's a great like gift kind of book. Like, oh, you have to read this. This is a thing. Um, so you, now you're over at Marvel. You've, you've gone across the uh, not real hallway anymore, but uh, and, and you're on Shang Chi, uh, bringing that character back. Um, how'd that happen? How are you approaching the character? So, so Darren Shan, the the editor on the book, um, asked me to put in a proposal because mm-hmm. they they were talking about uh, you know relaunching him with a uh, with a miniseries because the movie was coming out. The movie that has since been delayed, um, like all movies, like all movies, yeah, <laughs> like like much of entertainment, at least live action entertainment, right? Um, but uh, so I, I was never a Shang Chi fan, but it did feel like an opportunity because he is right now at least the the most prominent Asian American superhero character because of that movie, right? Because mm-hmm. of all the announcement and the excitement uh, about that movie, so. Um, so I put in a proposal. He liked it. Darren liked it, and signed me up. And, and we were we were running. So he he was the one. He'd worked with DK Ruan, who's one of the artists on it before. Uh, and Philip and I, uh, Philip Tan and I, the other artist, had been friends for a while. Oh. Uh, did he work on Superman? He, some he did. Uh, he did covers. Okay. He never did interiors, but he did covers in Superman for for Superman and for uh, New Superman. Right. Um, but it's it's been super fun. It's been great. It's been a ton of fun. Yeah, so, Marvel Marvel's different from DC, right? Because Marvel doesn't have these like super hard resets. So yeah. that means that everything is still in play, even even some of the problematic stuff. You you so just did, gotta figure it out. Yeah, did you have to because if you weren't a fan, did you have to go back and you know, there's not much recent history with that character. He shows up every once in a while, but it seems like that mostly yeah. lives in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like uh, Darren sent me a bunch of old super like Shang Chi comics, and mm-hmm. I'd read um, I'd read uh, the Marvel Max Shang Chi way back when, mm-hmm. but that, I think that was the only Shang Chi that I'd ever really read. So he he sent me a bunch of stuff. He sent me the old seventies comics. He sent me the more recent Secret Avengers stuff mm-hmm. um, that I, I really liked. So I think it was, was your... Ed Baker that did it. Yeah, yeah. What was your take on the character after sort of going back, and then how did you decide to move him forward? I, I mean, a lot of what Derek and I, t- Darren and I talked about was um, was family, you know. So, he, like in his origin, I think the 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 centerpiece of his origin is that he's this um, he's the son of a of a supervillain, mm-hmm. and the the supervillain is not like 
is not an awesome, he's a problematic character, right? The supervillain is this problematic character, but we wanted to keep that idea mm-hmm. that he is the son of a, of a supervillain. And we just had to fill out the supervillain part as much as possible. And, and when, when you say problematic, you mean terrible racial stereotypes. Yes, yes. yeah, yeah. He's like the epitome of uh, yellow peril. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But but I, I we just thought it was like most of us have issues with our family, you know? Like mm-hmm. uh, there's always this tension between um, just like defining yourself as an individual and wanting to separate from your family it's still like your family's always going to be a part of you. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there is an, like, it's not unique to Chinese culture, but it is characteristic of Chinese culture that there's this idea of filial piety where your parents occupy a very important part in your life all mm-hmm. the way through your entire life. And I think when you're, when your dad is a supervillain, that piece becomes even more amplified. So that's what we wanted to explore. And, um, I don't tend to think of you as a person who writes a lot of action, although you know you've done Superman, you did news, you know, this is you know this is a big action book, this kind of thing, you know. Have you have you liked doing that over the years? You feel more comfortable about it? Like, what do you think your strong point is with that stuff? Yeah, I feel I feel a little more comfortable with it. But you're mm-hmm. right. I I think that's like in any given story, the action is never the piece that's most interesting to me. Um, and I, I feel lucky. I feel lucky that I got t- paired up with uh, with Philip and with DK. I think both of them are great at action. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of that is me giving some minimal stage direction, and then they come out with these gorgeous layouts. Mm-hmm. What's the What's the thing that you've learned about you know working in I guess in mainstream comics and scripting? Uh, you know. The, for those kind of things that you wish you'd known when you first started doing Superman? Uh, I think I, I've learned to be more flexible and more nimble as a writer and to feel less attached to, to certain ideas. Because mm-hmm. things will change all the time, you know? It's not like, like with, with my graphic novels, I feel like I could take an idea and I could basically beat it to death. Like I could explore every single nook and cranny of it if I want to. Uh, but with superhero comics, I think you kind of have to hold ideas with an open hand mm-hmm. and just trust that at the end of the process, things will come together well. It's, it's a whole process. Um, I, I, so one thing I'm curious about that, that I always think about is that you are known uh, in mainstream comics, at least, and in certain your other stories, is that you, you do stories about Asian and Chinese characters. Do you ever feel like you're pigeonholed in that kind of thing? Would you... Like, do you feel like this is a thing I should be doing because it's, it's good, you know, for all sorts of reasons, or, or you know, is that not not the only thing I want to do? And and by the way, I think you got out of this uh, in in Dragon Hoops to a certain extent, but still, race and culture is a giant part of that story. You know, yeah, is yeah. that just part of your package? Is that is that how it works? Or yeah, I mean, I think I think I do gravitate. Like, I think I think the big thing, the the big themes that interest me are all about identity, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's about. Uh, I have a friend who's a YA author, and she says that at the at the middle of every YA story is this equation: it's uh, belonging plus power is equal to identity. And I think that equation kind of expresses what I'm most interested in. In terms of story, mm-hmm. and I think in a in a multicultural country like America, race is just a part of it. Culture is just yeah. a part of figuring out what your identity is. So I, I I feel like I naturally gravitate towards that. In terms of 
being pigeonholed. I, I don't know if I felt pigeonholed. I just think... I just think working in comics is like really, it's really hard. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it's, I feel so lucky to be working in comics in any fashion mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily feel pigeonholed. I, I think, uh, like I, like for Shang-Chi, for example, like I really, I wanted to do this project because right. it's about a, a Chinese American, but then like I, I did, uh, I did, um, the Trifics recently for DC comics oh, yeah, yeah. and I wanted to do that book because, it's about a bunch of nerds, you know, like Mr. <laughs> Terrific is like the biggest nerd in, in, uh, in the DC universe. So I think, uh, I mean, I mean, even that too is about identity, right? Like, sure. Like, oh, absolutely. Sure. It's funny because the, the nerd thing is, I think how people reach across the other cultural lines, you know, like, yeah, that's you right. Know, you and I can have grown up <laughs> in very different places, but we're like, you remember Marvel comics from the eighties? Yes, I do. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. then all of a sudden you've got that. It's the, it's the same way. Um, yeah. It's the same way. So, uh, I do have to ask you this. You're the first official genius that I've had on my show. <laughs> do you tell well, people all the time, no, I, I'm actually a genius? I tell my wife all the time. Sure. It doesn't work, though. I'm like, I'm like, do I really have to do the dishes? You know, I have a MacArthur grant, but I still have to do the dishes. I still have to do the dishes. No, that was that was another crazy thing. I feel like the last five years have just been full of really weird things. Um, I, I was. I, I can tell you, call. I was. I was in my car, and I was listening to NPR, nerd, uh-huh. and 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 they said your name and the MacArthur Grant. And I went, what? And and I don't yeah. mean that is not you, but like you know, I don't know no, you, dude. but I I know you. I you know, like yeah. you, you make comics, yeah. and I was like, wow, they're even looking at this stuff. Exactly, exactly. So I uh, I got that call, and I was stunned. Like it was in the morning, and I just I didn't do any work for the rest of the day. I just sure. couldn't get over it. And then, um, and then one of the things that happens when you get the grant is you get to go to a retreat. So all the other people it, who who got the grant the same year you did go to this retreat, and you do these presentations, right, about your work. So I do my I do my presentation, and I talk about comic books, and you know a little bit about race and, and stuff, and I talk about Superman, and I, I was doing another book called Secret Coders at the time, so I talk about coding and comics and education through comics and then the uh, like the next presentation is this dude who is working on a technology that takes carbon (laughs) emissions and changes them back into usable fuel you know what i mean like that's how that day went i mean i i I would never take a single thing away from you and i believe comics are very important but you know like if there was ever a situation where imposter syndrome would be you know like did other people treat you like Oh no, comics are greater. They're like, what's he doing here? No, they were so nice. They were super <laughs> nice. But they but like I just constantly felt that way. Another person, another person, he was a he's a Native American who um who is uh his his tribe, he comes from a very small tribe, and in the 1970s, you know, because of all sorts of horrible, horrible things, the elders made the decision to kill their language, to force everyone in the tribe to speak English. And what he did was he went through um, notes taken by uh, by Europeans who had stayed with his tribe in the 1800s and early 1900s. He reconstructed the entire language. I've heard about this. And, right? Yes. He reconstructed the entire language, and, he, and there's like a full uh, uh, college curriculum about for it now like you could just take it as another another mm-hmm. foreign language so he's he's repopulating the world 
with people who speak this language that had been dead for decades. That dude, that dude gave a presentation after I gave a presentation about Superman. <laughs> That's rad. That's the yeah. coolest thing. <laughs> uh, no, you should. There's yeah. Feel feel. Don't do not feel like you do not belong there. That's comics are fantastic. Um, <laughs> it was really fun talking to you. Yeah, you too, Josh. This is great. It was this great. Was great. Well, uh, you know what? I uh, I will I will let everybody know about Dragon Hoops as possible. Uh, I will. Uh, that wasn't a sentence, but it's close. Um, and uh, I, I just I've I've always I really enjoyed the work uh, over the years, and it was really fun to talk to you. Yeah, you too, Josh. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for reading my comics. Thanks for, you know, promoting comics as a medium. All of it. You're very welcome. Thanks so much. All right. Have a good day. And that's all for this episode of Talksplode. Come back here in about two months, and uh, you can hear the next creator we get on this show. I, I want to thank Gene Luen Yang for spending time with me uh, and, and talking and, and hanging out. Uh it's always fun because you'll meet the people who do great books and you go, those are great people. And that is why I love doing this. You can go to geneyang.com to find out more about him or you can follow him at, uh, at Gene Lewin Yang uh, on Twitter. And that is all for me. Go to ifanboy.com. You can come out on this show on anything else that you would like to talk about or all the shows and posts and everything that we have up there. They are yours for the taking. Thanks again to the patrons uh, for supporting the show. Uh, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash ifanboy, and we'll see you soon. Oh, that's what all the sideline junkies smoke and reef on King